This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Chances are that you spend a certain amount of time doing what academics call consuming media. You know, watching TV and reading books and listening to music and stuff. Maybe you really like America's Next Top Model, or maybe you're a little bit of a CNN or NPR junkie. Maybe you go online and see when the next season of Dancing with the Stars is coming out. Maybe you've been online a few times looking at some of Martha Stewart's online tips. They're a good thing. Or maybe you have an online recipe box at foodnetwork.com. Or maybe you're one of the thousands of people who sent in peanuts to the CBS network to save the TV show Jericho back in May of this year. Point is, it's a lot easier now to take an active interest in the TV shows, books, hobbies, music, and movies and such that we love than it used to be. In other words, it's not as unusual as it might once have seemed to be a fan. But what does that mean, to be a fan? And what can it tell us about who we are? Here to answer these and other such questions today on Fordham Conversations is Jonathan Gray. Gray's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. I spoke to him earlier this year about his book about the TV show The Simpsons. More recently, Gray is one of the editors of the new book, Fandom, Identities and Communities in a Mediated World. It's a reader in the fairly new field of fan studies, and it's out now from New York University Press. Gray joined me in the studio to explain to me what this whole fan thing is all about and why I should care, just because I've seen every episode of The Simpsons 800 times and can quote from it at will. <laughs> Let's go to that interview. Jonathan Gray, welcome. Thank you. Now, let's just start out with a really pretty basic question, but one that I am sure is on the minds of people who are listening to this. What in God's name is fan studies anyway? Well, I think fan studies came about, uh, it started around the late 80s when what you had is a bunch of uh, people who were no longer just studying the media from sort of outside the media. These sort of older generations of media studies tend to be academics who hate the media. I'm generalizing massively, but let's run with that for the moment. Whereas what happened with um, a lot of the sort of uh, people who are now in their early 40s or 30s or 20s is, you know, they grew up with the media. And so whether they were being told that there were problems with the media and media programs or, you know, films or whatever, they were going home and consuming this stuff. They were listening to, you know, all the sort of pop hits. They were watching all the favorite TV shows. And so there was this sort of point in the sort of late 80s where you had a bunch of uh, these people who were becoming academics who said, you know what, what we need to do is we actually need to look at why people are engaging with these things rather than sort of continuing to assume what engagement meant and that, you know, you have all these accounts of the media that suggest, for instance, that people who are enjoy entertainment aren't good news consumers. They don't know what's going on. They're stupid. And those accounts are great when you're talking about other people, but it was always about other people. And so what you had were some people who were fans, who really engaged with, loved their programs, sometimes went to fan conventions, had some kinds of fan clothing and so forth, and said, well, wait a second, we're not completely lost in the machine as everyone seems to think we are. So why don't we talk about this? And that was sort of the, the moment where it began and, and it sort of picked up since. And I think it's, it's gotten more recruits as you've had more academics who have grown up perhaps suspicious of and, and wary of some things in the media, but also aware of the fact that they too love a lot of what they're watching, listening to, etc. So what kind of things specifically would have been said in the past about people who were fans of things? It's not just in the past. We could think of, you know, now, like just 
take the trekker as the stereotypical example. Or know, trekkie. Yeah, or actually trekkie. Uh, a lot of trekkers consider a, an insulting word, so they prefer the trekker. So I'll run with that for now. We all know the stereotypical example. Uh, we can think of the sort of 35, 40-year-old male or female who uh, doesn't yet have a boyfriend or girlfriend, probably never has, or if they had, it's someone that they met at a Starfleet convention they dress up in the clothes they've learned to speak Klingon. They can't speak to people of the opposite gender. They have lots of acne. They're losers. They have no life. These are the stereotypes that have circled around, not just Trekkers, but then lots of fans. That There's sort of this idea that there's a point of engagement beyond which you become, you know, a complete blithering moron beyond which you lose track of um, the distinction between reality and fantasy. You become sort of lost in, in Starfleet Academy or you sort of become a stormtrooper or whatever. Um, before the last Harry Potter movie, I, I remember seeing in the, um, the New York Post had all of these sort of very derogatory comments about um, Potter heads, as they called them, and comparing them to Trekkers as sort of different degrees of loserdom. And we're all aware of this, of or you know the other images of the sort of screaming sixteen-year-old girl at a you know a concert for a very bad boy band or something like that. Um, these are the the sort of images that circulate. Now the difference is though is that stereotypes are always going to exist in regular society. What's sad is when academics, those people who are meant to sort of get below them, just accept them. It would be the same thing as if, you know, for instance, in ethnic studies or in women's studies, people accepted stereotypes of what women or men are or of what, you know, white people or African-Americans are without actually sort of um, examining them. And so I think some of what fan studies was about was about saying, okay, let's really examine these. Let's really see what these fans are and whether they you know, sort of fess up to the stereotypes that exist rather sort of conveniently, but in the in the process make a bunch of people whose practices might not be as strange as we think they are look very strange. Is there a sense sort of in academia that's not focused on fans, but that's focused on media that a lot of what media does is sort of convince people of things that aren't true and sort of convince people that they're not being taken advantage of when they actually are and there's this suspicion as a result of that? Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely true. And I mean, let, let's be honest, that is what quite a lot of media does. I mean, advertising's very purpose in life is to convince you of things that are patently silly. You know, like eating Trident gum is not going to make you more attractive to women. Quite honestly, a lot of advertising does do that. And a lot of other media programs do do that. And I think because a large amount of uh, media scholarship is about studying that. There's then many people in, in media studies who would be suspicious of fan studies as, as being sort of celebratory, as, as sort of not accepting all that the media can do that's manipulative and instead engaging with what is what is manipulative and saying, so what, I don't care, la la la. Of course, what's funny is once you start to look at fans, you often find that the fans are the ones who are most aware of how programs and movies and so forth are manipulative. And fans are quite often complaining the loudest about the degree to which sometimes they are manipulative. There's a big distinction, I think, between being a fan and between believing that everything that your beloved text does is right. Uh, quite often, being a fan means actually disagreeing with large amounts of of what's there. I just read a, a wonderful thing online the other day that talked about what it means to be a Star Wars fan. 
And what it said is that ultimately to be a Star Wars fan involves hating a lot of Star Wars. Um, and I think we, we perhaps need to realize that uh, fandom quite often works in the same ways um, across fandoms, that fans are um, reflective in a degree that we, we often don't think they are. So if a fan is not somebody who is um, an acne-ridden person <laughs> in a Captain Kirk suit, what, what makes a person a fan? There, there are disagreements in, in uh, the field of fan studies. There are sort of two camps. And uh, one would see that you are a fan at the point at which you enter a fan community, at the point at which there are other people around you who are fans and that a large part of your identity, or at least part of your identity, is engaged with that community. I'm somewhat of more of the other camp, which is that I, I think, and I'd like to see fandom as, as being defined as a sort of heightened engagement with any form of text, the point at which you go beyond just liking something. The fan might be someone who, rather than just watching the program, might go online and, and discuss it or uh, might buy some of the sort of spin-off materials. Simpsons fans, for instance, are probably right now very excited about the fact that one of the 7-Elevens in New York has been turned into a quickie mart. And they're probably descending upon this Quickie Mart slash 7-Eleven with a great sense of engagement. Which uh, 7-Eleven is it? It's on, uh, what is it, at the 300 block of uh, West 42nd, apparently. Well, that's about, worth knowing. Yeah, there are about 10 in the uh, in the uh, United States and Canada. And they, they sell Buzz Cola and so forth. So you can actually set foot into a, a, a small part of Springfield now. I guess I'm kind of a fan then because I yeah, sort of want to go there now. Um, so why I, – I think this is fascinating personally, but why is the idea of, of fandom something that is worthy of serious academic study? Partly because it engages so much of our lives. You know, we're all familiar with these statistics that suggest that the average person consumes seven or eight hours of TV a day. And, you know, sometimes they don't – realize that that's just because the TV's on in the background. But still, however we want to sort of quibble with those statistics, all of us are aware of the incredible amount of media consumption that goes on. And increasingly, I think a lot of the, the media consumption that might be going on is around certain franchises. The media corporations have been very good at when they find something that fans like or um, proliferating it so that, you know, Lost is not just a TV show. Lost has an incredible network of online websites. You can go to websites for the airliner. You can uh, go to websites for uh, Drive Shaft, which is a band which one of the um, characters in Lost plays for. There's a large amount of, of, of sort of proliferation of these programs. and As people consume these and as people spend more time with them, it seems to us, the three editors of this book, but then also to all the contributors, that it would be irresponsible of us not to ask why. I mean, if a large number of people, and this is why, it's again, it's important to step away from the uh, the stereotype of the sort of, you know, geek in, in mom's basement, because so many of us are fans. And so why are we fans? And putting our fingers in our ears and saying, well, we shouldn't be fans, people shouldn't be fans, that's the end of the story. And examining other things can sometimes, you know, neglect to realize that, you know, a lot of people may be spending, uh, as soon as they got off work, they may go home, they may get online, they may turn on the TV, and they're a fan for the rest of the day. Uh, and so it seemed to us that fandom actually is quite central to understanding um, life, to understanding what it means to be existing, why people are fans, 
and asking those questions of what's involved in fandom seem to us ones that might actually get us to some of the big questions. So it wasn't just about, you know, why do people like Lost? Um, it would be that if you're engaging with something and spending that much time with it, um, then we might be able to find some some very important questions about, you know, you and your existence on this planet and, you know, what you're seeking, where your hopes and desires are, etc. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking today on the show about fandom with Jonathan Gray. He's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and he is one of the editors of the new book called Fandom, out now from NYU Press. In that book, Gray and the other contributors talk a lot about the idea of play. Since many fans seem to take their interests very seriously, I wondered what play had to do with fandom. That idea of play might give us a very good example of why people engage in fandom, and particularly in, in America. If you look at the industrialized world and you look at how much holiday time people get, America is right at the bottom of the pile. We don't get much time to, you know, have a break, uh, to relax. We don't get much playtime. And so fandom becomes a way of engaging in some form of play, romanticizing our way into a different existence, of getting away from a sort of boring everyday uh, world just for a few days. And I think a lot of people are very aware of that play. One of my favorite examples here is of a producer of um, Lassie uh, who talked about when the show was, was on, they received hundreds, sometimes thousands of fan letters to Lassie from children. Now, I'd like to believe that every single one of those children writing first knew that dogs can't read, but secondly knew that Lassie wasn't actually existent. So we could see that as a horrible example of how these kids had sort of been led to believe that Lassie was real, but rather I think it's an idea of how they engaged in the play. They thought it was fun to write to Lassie, and that in that process of writing to Lassie, there was something kind of, you know, fun, playful, uh, that may not be actually all that different then from, you know, people writing to soap opera stars when their characters get married and sending them flowers or so forth, or other uh, forms of engagement that uh, are, are seen as somewhat lost in the system. Is this whole sort of fandom thing new, or were there fans of, I don't know, Mozart, for example, the way that there are Beatles fans today? There's a section in our, our book on, you know, sort of high culture fandoms, and I'm using high culture in scare quotes there. We really wanted that section in there to, to point out that while the word fan is usually used only to refer to popular culture, Everything that fans do exists in multiple other forms for uh, other types of things, such as Mozart, or such as Bach. For instance, every year there's a Mozart festival in Austria, and people fly there from around the world. And yet we then have someone who flies to Vancouver to go and watch, go and see where The X-Files was filmed, and we think that that's very different. There's uh, a neat article in our, our book by uh, Roberta Pearson where she makes the argument that fan studies should actually start looking at at the uh, the fans of things like Bach or uh, of Sherlock Holmes, of which Roberta is a huge fan, looking at middlebrow and highbrow fandoms, and realizing that actually a, a lot of the th- sort of 
games that fans play and a lot of the engagement that fans uh, enter into, we can see there too. There's also another um, a chapter in the book uh, by Dan Kavicki, who has a wonderful book on uh, Bruce Springsteen fans, but went back a couple of centuries to look at fans of opera and of concert house music in 18th century Boston. Um, and he did wonderful archival work to read uh, these journals by a few people uh, who are alive and, and going out and listening to this music and engaging very much in the same way. So while the word fan and the uh, sort of the longer form of fanatic may often have been applied just to popular culture, I think they've exi- they've always existed and they've existed across the spectrum too, not just popular culture. Indeed, Perhaps we might be a little more honest with ourselves if we realize all the many types of fandoms that we have. You know, I mean, there are gardening fans, for instance, um, and if we start using that word fan, there's not that much difference sometimes in how gardening fans conduct themselves and how, you know, Star Trek fans conduct themselves. They have conventions that they go to. They have their own logo, you know, sort of lingo, and they talk in terms that other people wouldn't understand. They have their own costumes. They trade sort of things that the rest of the world might see as completely without value, and yet they find immense value in them. There's a lot going on there that's actually quite similar. You mentioned um, gardening, and that made me think about Martha Stewart, who mm. you have a chapter on in the book. Tell me tell me about that. Yeah, the, the, the Martha Stewart uh, chapter by Melissa Click is a fun one. Um, Melissa did quite extensive work with uh, Martha fans. And she sort of picked a wonderful time to, to do it unknowingly because uh, the, the whole uh, I'm clone thing uh, blew up in, in Martha's face while uh, Melissa was in the middle of her uh, field work. And so one of the things that she was uh, interested in doing in that, that article is looking at the uh, distinction uh, drawn between fans of Martha Stewart, between those people who really liked Martha the person and um those people who actually couldn't really stand Martha the person, but really liked, you know, the sort of tips that she was offering or so forth. And then people who moved back and forth between them so that you had people who really didn't like Martha. uh, But then after she seemed to be the center of a a big witch hunt, were all of a sudden finding themselves defending Martha and becoming quite a different type of fan of her, Uh, which again is a, it's a fun article, I think, because it shows the degrees to which you can be different types of fans. Sometimes you can like the person, but not really care about what they're saying. Sometimes you can like what they're saying, but really dislike the person. It seems like the sort of world we live in at the moment with, you know, myriad cable channels, the internet, so on and so forth, has made it a lot easier and more likely that you're going to become sort of an obsessive fan. Have you found that to be true, or is that just my assumption? Uh, what's well, it's hard to say because in order to say whether that's true or not, I need data that I just don't have access to. Um, I think one of the things that is changing is that, and Henry Jenkins, who uh, is really kicked off fan studies and is the the sort of seen as the reigning monarch of fan studies, although I'm sure Henry wouldn't like to be considered a monarch. And he writes the afterword for our our book. Henry has pointed out that one of the things that very much has changed is the media industries now need fans. In the past, media industries usually found fans annoying. Fans, uh, with the exception of the soap industry, who have always sort of 
been able to try and find ways to deal with fans. Most media industries just found fans as kind of people who, okay, sometimes you'd placate them by sending out a cast member to Comic-Con or so forth. But by and large, they got in the way because they protested when you did things with their beloved characters. And also media industries often haven't liked them because there are then legal issues where fans quite often engage in producing, for instance, fan fiction or fan film, where they start to use characters that the media industries see as belonging to them in ways that the media industries don't want them to be used. Including making them do dirty things. Exactly. So that, you know, George Lucas, while I think he's now changed his, his tune a bit, long accepted fan film because it was it was often about, you know, sort of people playing with lightsabers, uh, but really didn't like and drew the line at and would send the lawyers after those people who were uh, trying to produce stories that said, for instance, that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan had a a sexual relationship going between them or that the Jedi training method was somehow sort of homosexual in nature. That's at a point at which uh, quite often uh, the media industries would, would get upset. However, you know, for all these reasons, the media industries quite often didn't like fans. Fans just got in the way. Whereas now what you have is a situation in which you have so many options that it's no longer enough just to sort of hope that out of, for instance, on TV, that out of the three networks you'll get around a third of the audience. Uh, with so many networks now, you have to rely on fans um, and you have to court them. Media industries have learned to love fans so that, you know, ABC does very well out of lost fans. NBC, despite relatively small numbers for uh, heroes, have uh, learned to love heroes fans because fans will be loyal. They'll come back and watch next week. They'll tell people to watch it and they'll buy all the stuff. Uh, so you've got a much better chance of making more money off them. And so I think one of the things that's changed is that uh, the media industries have realized the value of fandom. And so fandom is no longer something that's now on the outside and something that media industries see as an annoyance, although in some ways they still do. I think fandom is now actually something that they actively are courting. Actively courting and also sort of trying to control through their own websites and things. Exactly. And I mean, and there's the sort of the contradiction is that on one hand, they say, you know, we love you, but then they want to set the rules for how to love them. Uh, and fan fiction writers have, have long found that they're caught in the crosshairs here, uh, that the way in which they use the characters is not ways in which the media industries feel that they should be. Um, and yet fan fiction writers will claim that they don't belong to them, um, just as Shakespeare could take almost all of his stories from other people and rewrite them. Most great creators in the history of, of art have ripped off left, right, and center. And fan fiction writers will say that they're doing the same thing. So there's a sort of a war of fandom um, going on, I think, right now. If for no other reason, too, then sometimes the media industries themselves can't determine whether they like fans or not. Or rather, one leg of the... Um, where arm of the industry thinks that fans are great and is courting them, and the other is trying to shoo them away. Where do fans meet? Online, often these days. Um, I mean, of course, there are many real-world uh, meeting places, too. But online, uh, the Internet has become a sort of massive uh, clearinghouse, if you will, for uh, fan communities. I'd probably hazard the guess that after porn, fan communities and fan sites are probably some of the most... Uh, prevalent uh, sites and communities online. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. 
Ahead this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarki. On this week's show, it's a panel discussion about the best summer reading about New York City. That is ahead at 7.30 on WFUV. This week on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about fandom with Jonathan Gray. Gray is an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and he's one of the editors of the new book, Fandom, Identities and Communities in a Mediated World. It's out now from NYU Press. Let's go back now for the conclusion of that conversation. I asked Jonathan Gray about his contribution to the book. It's about fans of a kind of media we don't usually think of as having fans, the news. I found this interesting in in the wake of um, audience research that I had done on The Simpsons. And I was talking about news parody with one person in particular. She was a Canadian, and she told me, and this was kind of off a topic at the moment, but she told me that she consumed huge amounts of Canadian parliamentary access TV, so the equivalent of C-SPAN. Uh, she watched about three or four hours a day. She said that as a result of this, she knew every member of parliament in Canada. She knew when they were running for election, who was running against them, and so forth. And I found it very interesting because she then stopped and said, you know, I'm not really doing this to, you know, for the sake of civic engagement. I'm doing it because it's entertaining. And I thought that I've, I appreciated her honesty there, and I wondered how often people who consume huge amounts of news are actually being news fans. Um, and we can think of then the people who are on blogs, you know, six hours a day posting responses to anything that Hillary Clinton has said or so forth. They're not just engaging with the news as good civic participants. They're actually news fans and politics fans. And one of the things I was interested in in studying and, and I was trying to get at more is the degree to which maybe some of the ways in which we engage with the news or politics when we're a news fan um, and a news fan is, is would be someone who general society would consider a good, noble citizen. You know, if you spend six hours a day reading the news, you are a good person. What I was interested in is then, how are they doing that? And if we take that type of practice and then shift it to something like entertainment, can we get some of the same endpoints? Can we reach some of the same goals? And the way in which you engage with the news when you're asked to engage with it at sort of, you know, the multiple hours a day might actually have a lot more in common with the way in which you engage with entertainment or engage with what are seen as sort of peripheral texts. There's a very good book by um, Lisbeth Van Zunen called Entertaining the Citizen, and she actually takes up this argument. And one of the things that she says is that if you look at for instance, political conventions, they have a lot in common with fan conventions. Uh, if you look at how most of the ways in which uh, people who are very politically active engage, they have a lot in common with fandom. And so what her question is, and this was sort of mine too, is how can we try and fuse those? How can we, might we be able to use fandom in a way that then actually kicks in a sort of political element? Now, that's not to assume that it does happen all the time, and I'm by no means arguing that all fans are wonderfully politically engaged people. That is not the point at all. But it is to suggest that that might provide a model, uh, that fandom and the way in which people engage with entertainment might actually provide us a model um, so that rather than us continuing our you know, sort of society-wide fear of entertainment, we might actually find ways to embrace it that then get us through the back door to um, political engagement. I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'll close with mm-hmm. this. What is your favorite article in this book, and why? My favorite article in the book, just for sense of 
it's great fun is there's a um article in there by Jeffrey Sconce of Northwestern University about Paris Hilton and it's in the anti-fandom section and it's got a wonderful title it's called a vacancy at the Paris Hilton and Jeff as becomes very obvious a paragraph in does not like Paris Hilton and to say that I am understating and I love it because I think Jeff does a wonderful job of of keeping his academic hat on and yet writing in a wonderfully uh, engaging fun style and what he's really trying to do is is examine why Paris Hilton is as popular as she is and we liked that piece for several reasons one because it's engaging and it's fun but also because it sort of provided a, a some of the other a sort of counterweight to some of the other things in in the book and that we don't want to be seen as guilty of just engaging in this mindless celebration of all things fandom and Jeff's piece is a, a good, uh, and right now in the wake of her coming out of prison, uh, a very timely reminder of uh, some of the problems behind fandom too, and some of the questions that we should still be able to ask, and some of the criticisms we should still be able to um, engage in while we're also examining why people are fans in, in perhaps more sympathetic manner. Well, the book is called Fandom, Identities and Communities in Mediated World, and it is edited by Jonathan Gray, Cornell Sandvoss, and C. Lee Harrington. It's out from NYU Press. Jonathan Gray, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. If you are a fan or an anti-fan of the show... Or if you just have a question or a comment, why not email us? The address is Conversations at wfuv.org, and either way, we'd love to hear from you. From WFUV 90.7 and wfuv.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. Look for our podcast at wfuv.org, or listen to past shows in our audio archives, where you can also hear Jonathan Gray's Simpsons show. Again, the name of the book that we talked about today on the show is Fandom, Identities and Communities in a Mediated World, and it's out now from NYU Press. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.